Hi, welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. These teams still deserve to be recognized, even though they failed when it, when it mattered most. And whether they were undone by bad timing, injuries, hubris, or just plain bad luck, they all have a tale worth telling. I am your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and I'm being joined remotely by my friend and co-host for the week for this podcast, Bruce Stone. We're continuing with part two out of three of the 1968 to 1978 Minnesota Vikings. So here we go. In the 73 season, they were actually able to benefit from the year previous year's mediocre finish, and they got the 12th pick in the 73 draft. And they drafted 6'2", 210 running back Chuck Foreman out of the U, the University of Miami. So Chuck Foreman was a shifty runner, great receiver out of the backfield. He played receiver a little bit at Coral Gable when he was in Coral Gables going to school. He was quite an offensive game changer, so they were excited to have him aboard. The other noteworthy aspect of the Vikings draft, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but please pleasure me, is that with their last pick in the 17th round, back when the draft had about a zillion rounds, 429th overall, they picked Dave Winfield out of the University of Minnesota. Now, Winfield was a hometown St. Paul boy who starred in basketball and baseball for the Golden Gophers, even helping them win the Big Ten Hoops title outright in 72. Now, he was 6'6", super athletic, obviously, was getting drafted by the Vikings, even though that wasn't his primary sport. But the Vikings thought they could turn him into a tight end, even though he never even played college ball. Now, years later, the Chargers did that very successfully with Antonio Gates, who played basketball at Kent State but didn't play football. So they were a little bit ahead of the, ahead of the curve in thinking about that when you have a special big athlete like Dave Winfield. Now, Winfield was also drafted by the San Diego Padres, the Atlanta Hawks of the NBA, and the Utah Stars of the ABA, making him one of only six players ever to be drafted by pro teams in three sports. That's another fun fact for you, for your trivia tackle box. Now, he, of course, would play outfield for the Padres, then move on to the Yankees and four other teams before retiring in 1995 and being a first ballot Hall of Famer, deservedly so, in 2001. Now, why do I care so much about Dave Winfield? Because he is my favorite baseball player of all time. I was a Yankees fan growing up, but I liked Dave Winfield. For some reason, my brother and I just thought he was the bomb, and he was at the time. And when he got signed by the Yankees, I met him in 1981 at a Meet Dave Winfield event. And I still have my picture with him. And I should probably, I'll probably post this on uh, my Instagram feed. And I still have the baseball he signed for me that day. So Pretty cool. Pretty cool. This guy could do it all. He was. He was a stud. But he never played for the Vikings. Let's go back to the Vikings. They got Chuck Foreman out of the draft. And he was electric, as I mentioned. And the rest of the team only got three yards per carry, but Chuck, Chuck was changing things. As a rookie, he ran for over 800 yards and four touchdowns, and he caught two more touchdowns. That was good enough to be offensive rookie of the year and get a Pro Bowl invite as a rookie. So not too bad, young, young guy. Tarkin and Gilliam was still a sweet connection, and Tark had a much more efficient year at quarterback. He had Ron Yeri, who was an all-pro almost every year at right tackle defending him. Gilliam was a pro bowler, again, scoring nine touchdowns. Now, I haven't mentioned his name a lot, but I probably have, but Fred Cox is still on the team. He's still missing field goals. He got 60% that year, but 
Yeah, talk about talk about loyalty. They stuck with Bud Grant no matter what happened. They stuck with Fred Cox, come hell or high water. And in the 60s and 70s, as I mentioned previously, these kickers were shockingly inaccurate. Even when these guys transitioned from American style to some of the early soccer style guys like Stenerud, Pete Gogolak, you can name you can name a lot of them if you're a geek like me. And these guys were not that accurate. So I'm, sh- I'm shocked these guys didn't go on fourth more. Vikings that year, they scored the ninth most points in the NFL, which was an improvement up from the fall. So their offense was, was, was going in the right direction. And the defense, thankfully, returned to their excellent form. Heller and Page were all pros. Remember, all pros means they were voted best in the NFL, not just best in their conference. And their scoring defense was back to second in the league. They only let up 12 points a game. And the team was back to being dominant. They went 12-2, and two, and they won the Central Division title again. And they tied the Dolphins and the Rams for the best record in the whole league. Um, Not a lot of parity I'm noticing in these years. You got the same teams, and someone's going a couple of teams 12-2 and two every year. There must have been some horrible teams in this league. Oh, yeah, it's true. It's true. Imagine, I mean, yes, it was rough to be a Vikings fan, but at least your team was winning 12, 12 13 games a year. I mean, I'm, these, these, there are a bunch of other teams that uh, were just, you know, bottom of the barrel. You know, if you're, right, if these, well, if these three or four teams in the NFC are winning the same double-digit games right. every year, you're right. There are a lot of bottom feeders. Now, the first round of the playoffs, they hosted the wild card Washington football team, then known as the Redskins. These skins were coached by George Allen, who was a coaching legend, and they had a very opportunistic D, and their quarterback was the beefy Billy Kilmer. Now, he wasn't known for mobility, but he was known for being tough and just slinging the ball deep. So Washington missed a field goal, and the first quarter ended a very pleasant 0-0. Boring as heck. Now, Tarkenton hit Oscar Reed. Uh, for a 50-yard pass, one of the running backs in the second quarter, and this led to a Fred Cox successful field goal. Go, Freddie. But Washington took the ball right back down the field and uh, took the lead on a Larry Brown short touchdown run. So they led at the half 7-3. to three. In the third quarter, the Vikings took the lead on Bill Brown's short touchdown run. But Washington's kicker, Kurt Knight, tied the game with an impressive 52-yard field goal. You know, not a lot of guys were kicking 50-yard-plus field goals at, at that time, but 52 yards in playoffs in the winter was pretty, was pretty solid. So it was 10-10 going into the final quarter. I'm sure the, the Minnesota fans were popping tums like they did every game of the playoffs. Knight kicked Washington to the lead um, after another long field goal. So they were up 13-10, to but Tarkenton led a long, meticulous drive just a lot of rollouts, design rollouts, short, crisp passing, kind of like what a lot of teams do today. And he, every now and then to mix it up, he handed it off to Chuck Foreman, who would, who would bust open and get a couple yards. So they got down to the 28, and Fran dropped back and hit Gilliam with a beautiful 28-yard pass to the snow line corner of the end zone in the right corner. Minnesota led 17-13. to 13. Kilmer knew they were down, and as soon as he got the ball back, he started to throw on just about every play. But one of his plays, one of his passes, I should say, was Arrington. was picked off by Nate Wright, who returned it all the way to the Washington 10-yard line. On second and goal, Tarkin scrambled away from uh, the Washington defense because he was, he was quite elusive, and he hit Gilliam open in the end zone, and the Vikings took a 24-13 lead. Now, just, just so you know, not everything was working great. The special teams let them down again. 
and Washington blocked a punt to set up <coughs> to set up the, the Washington team in excellent scoring position at the Vikings 28. And on the next play, Kilmer threw a touchdown to cut the lead to four points, 24 to 20. However, going against script, the Vikings were not going to let this one get away. And they drove down the field for another Freddie Cox field goal and then held off Kilmer, who, um, who threw a late incompletion on fourth down with under a minute left. And the Vikings won and got out of the first round, 27 to 20. So finally, they got that monkey off their back. Oh, my hopes are, hopes are rising again. Kind of exciting. <laughs> this could be the year. All right, let's see what happens next. So on to the NFC final versus Dallas in Texas Stadium where they built a hole in the top, according to Cowboys fans, so that God could watch his or her team play. Gag. The Cowboys had another excellent year. Obviously, Tom Landry with his cool hat at the helm and Staubach as quarterback. They had Calvin Hill, who actually ran for 1,100 yards that year, was in the Pro Bowl. And the rest of the offense, however, shared, shared the love and was very balanced. The Doomsday D was still stocked with those game changers that they had the previous couple years. And somehow it seemed like the Vikings were on a mission. And actually, they completely dominated Dallas in a very, very sloppy game. So Fred Cox opened the Vikings scoring with a field goal, and then Chuck Foreman ran for a touchdown on a sweep to give the Norsemen a 10-0 halftime lead in Dallas. And in the third, Dallas had this wide receiver, punt returner named Golden Richards, who also had golden, golden hair. He was quite dreamy. He returned a punt 63 yards to cut the lead to 10-7. Curse you special teams. That's all, Bud, all I got. Get it fixed. Exactly. Talk about like one thing not working in your, in, in your car and you don't get it fixed. And then you keep losing the race and you wonder why. So Tarkenton uh, kept his foot on the gas and he hit Gilliam with a 54-yard bomb. And the Vikings were up 17-7. to now, Tony Frisch, one of the early European kickers, hit a field goal to cut the lead to 7 points, 17 to 10, <clears throat> and to get the Cowboys uh, back in the game. Now, the Cowboys got the ball back, and Stallback, sensing urgency, was passing on every play, and the Vikings just hung back. So for, they ent ended up intercepting Roger four times for the game, with Bobby Bryant sealing the win with an interception, he returned 63 yards for a touchdown. And watching the replay for this, this, this was like one of those like backbreakers. It was just great to watch because obviously I was cheering for the Vikings, even though I knew the final outcome and just, see him just <laughs> take, take Rogers desperation pass and just bring it to the house. It's just great. We are ready to get hurt again. Let's do I know, it. I know. So, but in the end, the Cowboys actually had six turnovers at home in the NFC championship. And the Vikings doubled their total yardage and doubled their first downs, despite having four turnovers themselves. So Tarkenton was quietly efficient, and the Vikings got 200 yards on the ground. And when, when the dust settled, it was a 27-10 Minnesota victory, and they punched their ticket to their second Super Bowl. They were <clears throat> unfortunately faced with the unenviable task of playing the Don Shula-led Miami Dolphins in Super Bowl VIII. Any NFL fan can tell you Miami won the Super Bowl the previous year going a nauseating 17-0, which Dolphins fans still live off of. This year, they actually lost two games rather than going undefeated, but they steamrolled both the Bengals and the Raiders in the playoffs to get back to the Super Bowl. 
These Dolphins had the best scoring D in the land. They were the no-name defense. They let up a paltry 10.6 points a game, very much like, you know, very Viking-esque. And they had the fifth-best scoring offense. Their quarterback was the bespeckled Purdue product, Bob Greasy, who didn't really pass much, but he, land, he, he was very efficient, and he threw very few times, but when he did, they counted. And a very run-heavy offense, led by Syracuse alum steamroller Larry Zonka, the very swift Mercury Morris, and they combined for almost 2,000 yards. And then they had the third head of this, uh, of this dog was Jim Kick, who also, excuse me, would punch in a couple of touchdowns here and there. Their star wide receiver was Paul Warfield, who got 11 touchdowns and 500-plus yards. Their top receiver by receptions that year with only 30 catches was Marlon Briscoe, who was the answer to another great trivia question. Who was the first African-American to start a quarterback in the Super Bowl era? Now, you have to go back a bit. He was a wide receiver at this point. In his rookie year in 1968, he was playing for the Broncos. And he was converted to wide receiver the next year and when he, when he got traded to the Bills. But he played for quarterback. He was a quarterback for the Broncos in his rookie year of 68. So that's a good trivia question, too. If you want to really split hairs with your trivia geek friends, Fritz Pollard was really the first African-American quarterback. And he played for the Akron Pros in the old NFL of the 1920s. So that is a deep, 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 deep cut. That is a deep cut. You're talking the Akron Pros. I think the Duluth Eskimos were around at that point. The Canton Bulldogs. Are those some, of those, some of those teams had awesome nicknames back in the day. They really did. And the Decatur Staleys, who went on to become the Chicago Bears. But alas, we digress, and it's mostly – actually, it's entirely my fault. So the no-name D – was intact from their previous year. They had the late, great Nick Bonacani, a linebacker, had defensive tackle Manny Fernandez, who would go on to be a professional wrestler, all pro safeties Jake Scott and Dick Anderson, and, of course, outside linebacker Doug Swift. Now, he grew up in Syracuse, where my in-laws grew up with him, but he was undrafted out of Division Three Amherst College, where I was rejected when I applied early for college, but those wounds have healed. And he attended med school after retiring from the NFL. Now, Doug Swift is an anesthesiologist, which is another deep cut. It would have been a deeper cut had, be, had he been a surgeon. <laughs> Kaboom! Okay, I know, okay I doctor. All right, I'll, I'll rein it in, I'll rein it in. So, Super Bowl eight, the Dolphins won the coin toss, got the kickoff, and marched right down the field, just giving it to Larry Zonka and Mercury Morris. On the touchdown drive that lasted five minutes, and culminated when Larry Zonka, who just plowed his way in over from the five. And, you know, that's what got him here, so that's what they were going with, and they were up 7 nothing. Now, the Vikings tried to fight Miami with Miami. By Miami, I mean bringing in Hurricane alum Chuck Foreman. But Chuck was only able to get nine yards on the first three plays they gave it to him, so they had a punt. Now, the Dolphins decided to go right back to the well, and they did the exact same thing. They ran the ball seven out of nine plays on the next drive and gave it to Zonka, gave it to Morris, gave it to Kick. And at the end of the drive, they got to the one-yard line. They gave it to Jim Kick, who scored from one yard out. So Miami was up 14-0 after two possessions, and there were only two minutes left in the first quarter. So the, the Vikings were feeling the heat. Miami D smothered Tarkenton and the offense. So the teams were exchanging punts until the Dolphins put together another short drive that ended with a Garo Yupremian 28-yarder, 17 to nothing. Now, I, I just love kicker deep cuts, 
So if you remember Gary Premian, he was from sure. Cyprus. He was a former soccer star. And he muffed that blocked field goal attempt in the previous Super Bowl. We tried to pass a block kick while the, Viking, while the Dolphins were up 14-0. Would have put them up 17-0. And they could have ended the season 17-0 and winning the Super Bowl 17-0. But he threw it. It popped up in the air. Mike Bass of, of the uh, Washington football team grabbed it, returned it for Washington's only score. Another cool thing about Garo, if you didn't have enough, is he came to the U.S. on a soccer scholarship to IU, which has always been a soccer powerhouse. And then after college, he made the Lions, and they cut him, and then he became a Dolphin for eight years. And then if you watched a lot of reruns in the 70s like I did, he made a uh, cameo in the classic TV show The Odd Couple with Tony Randall and Jack London. So, you know, to the, uh, to the, it strikes me that? you missed another TV actor earlier in the show, Ed Marinara, wasn't, didn't he go on to star in Hill Street Blues? Exactly. I'm actually, I'm actually going to discuss that in depth at the end in the autopsy, but you are 100% correct. Yeah, we're going to talk about Ed Marinara, who's more famous for being a cop on Hill Street Blues than carrying the rock for the, uh, for the Vikings during his pro, pro career. Back to the Super Bowl. Tarkenton got the ball back, orchestrated a five-minute drive of his own, and got the Vikings to the Miami Six. And then eventually um, they got a few more yards, and it was fourth and one. Now they ran the ball up the gut to Oscar Reed, who got stuffed. And not only that, he fumbled. So with one minute left in the half, Miami stuffed them, got the ball back, and just ran out the clock, and they were up 17 to nothing at halftime. Now in the third... Miami kept the ball on the ground. Zonka got another touchdown from two yards out. So it was 24 to nothing. Tarkenton um, was able to drive the team one more time into the Miami red zone and capped off the drive with a four-yard scramble early in the fourth quarter to at least get off the schneid and end the shutout 24 to seven. But that was where the game would end. Zonka was the MVP running for 145 yards and two touchdowns. Greasy only had to throw seven passes. He completed six, so just talk about what a dominating run game and dominating D can do for you. And Tarkenton was the second quarterback, became the second quarterback to take Minnesota to the Super Bowl, but the song remained the same, to quote Led Zeppelin. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High-Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida. Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. Now it's 74. The next year, the front four Purple People Eaters had remained completely intact since 1967 when Page was drafted. Now, the least famous, but nonetheless a consistent force was defensive tackle Gary Larson. In 74, he was 34, which is pretty old for a defensive lineman. So he started to work in his eventual replacement, Doug Sutherland, and they split snaps, you know, for most of the year. And this was Sutherland's fourth year with the Vikings, and he had served as kind of a, an apprentice, but never started before. Sutherland was the only uh, white guy on that front unit, so I think the Vikings are trying to pull a bewitched ruse on us, plugging in another solid white guy, like Dick Sargent got plugged in to replace Dick York as the star's husband, Darren. I don't know what the producers were thinking of bewitched at the time. The casting director probably said, Dick York's out, just get me another dick. Cover a lot of ground on this podcast. 
I know, I know. I try to touch on a lot of uh, pop culture touchstones. All right, but I'll bring well, I'll rein it back in. So the '74 Vikings, they kept up their strong defense. Third in points allowed. The passing attack actually ramped up, and they scored the fifth most points in the NFL, which is better than ninth the year before. Fran threw for six more touchdowns, and Gilliam made the Pro Bowl with Fran again, as did Chuck Foreman, who ran for over 1,300, actually should say gained 1,300 combined yards and got 15 total touchdowns. So Chuck was really their money man on offense along with Fran and Gilliam. So talk about a fantasy football stud in the era before fantasy football. Ron Yeri was still the all-world member of the O-line and could even block out the sun in addition to protecting Tarkenton's very mobile backside. But then again, wait, Minnesota's weather system usually blocks out the sun as well. Now you got Eller, Page, and Kraus all get invited to the Pro Bowl again. Boring. But this translated to a 10-4 and record and another Central Division crown. Now, in the divisional round of the playoffs, they hosted the St. Louis Football Cardinals, who were coached by my all-time favorite coach, future Chargers coach Don Coriel. The quarterback of the Cardinals at this time was the very underrated Jim Hart. And he had a, they had a very versatile running back, Terry Metcalf. They had really good wide receivers, Old Thomas and Mel Gray. And the game was played in Bloomington, so of course it was freaking cold and snowing. Same as it ever was. The teams traded touchdown passes to go in a halftime, tied at 7-7. Of course, Gilliam caught the pass from Tark against his old team. And I'm sure they were regretting that trade from the, from the second after it happened. And now coming out in the second half, the Vikings came out angry, and they picked off Hart on the first drive. And they brought it down, and Freddie Cox hit a field goal to take the lead. The Cards got the ball back, and they did a toss sweep to Medcap. Uh, to Metcalf, I should say, but Eller and Page mauled him and stripped the ball, and Nate, Nate Wright picked up the ball and returned to 20 yards for a touchdown, 17-7 to Minnesota. And, and the Vikings were not done in the third quarter. They rounded out the third quarter with a Tark to Gilliam 38-yard pass to go up 23-7. to why, why were they not triple-teaming Gilliam? I mean, he was their <laughs> main weapon in the air. I would have three guys on him. Every three guys on Page and then three guys on Gilliam. That's the, exactly. that's the formula, I think, yeah. Exactly. And then have like two linebackers shadowing Chuck Foreman. And then you'd probably shut down the Vikings' offense. I mean, uh, Spready Cox, unfortunately, missed a field goal, so they were up 23-7. Purple people eaters continue to pressure a heart, and every throw looked like he was just desperate, just trying to get rid of it. And the Vikings mounted another touchdown drive while they got the ball back with Chuck Foreman capping it off with a four-yard run. The Cards got a uh, touchdown as consolation, but the Vikings won 30-7 and were on to the NFC Championship, where they would once again host the L.A. Rams, that sunny, sunny weather team. The Rams were 10-4. They were behind the very steady quarterback, James Harris, and they had their star running back, Lawrence McCutcheon, in their backfield. Harris had some really good deep threats, Harold Jackson and Jack Snow who you think should have been playing for Minnesota with that last name. But they finished in the middle of the pack in the NFL when it came to offensive production. On the defensive side of the football, the Rams let up the least points in the NFL, even less than the Vikings. So that's impressive. <laughs> Excuse me. On their D-line alone, they featured two future TV stars in Merlin Olsen, who would go on to be in the Little House on the Prairie, and Fred Dreyer, who later on to play the cop Hunter. And then, of course, you had the all-time badass defensive end Jack Youngblood. They also had Jack Hacksaw Reynolds, who was the anchor of their linebacker core, 
And they had some dude who I'd never heard of named Dave Elmendorf, who's playing defensive back, who had seven interceptions, returning two for touchdowns, yet somehow didn't make the Pro Bowl. How did you get seven interceptions, two year return returns, not make the Pro Bowl? Interceptions were cheap back then. We've already covered this, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a great year. So they had an amazing defense, too. They beat Minnesota 20 to 17 in LA late in the year. So they came into the frozen north with a little bit of a swagger, I think. By Minnesota standards, it was 29 degrees at kickoff. So, man, that, that's like suntan. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, that's like dying outside weather with your kid in a stroller and not even a blanket. So the teams, the teams exchanged turnovers because these Ds were pretty amazing. But Minnesota couldn't even muster a first down in the first quarter, which ended scoreless. And, and what was a turnover-filled first half, though the Vikings finally started to cut loose in the air, and Tarkin and hit wide out Jim Lash on a 29-yard touchdown pass. They got the ball back, and the Vikings were going in for a second touchdown before the half. But Jack Youngblood stripped Chuck Foreman, which um, unfortunately was a problem with Foreman. Sometimes he could hold on to the ball. And the, and the Rams recovered near midfield, and they were able to drive down and settle for a David Ray field goal, so they were only down 7-3 at the half. After halftime, it was still sloppy, but the Rams had a little bit of a spark, and on a broken play, Harris escaped the Purple People Eater pass rush and hit Harold Jackson, who was one of the faster wide receivers in the NFL, over the middle. And after a few cutbacks, he was pushed out at the two-yard line. They had third and goal, and James Harris rolled out to his right and threw into the end zone where the pass actually got deflected and was intercepted by longtime linebacker who hadn't mentioned Wally Hilgenberg, a great name. So big sigh of relief from the Viking faithful. Go Wally. The Tarkenton then took, took the Vikings on a long stop-and-start drive with a lot of you know, sacks and penalties, but eventually led to Super Dave Osborne diving over from the one to go up over the Rams 14-3 in the fourth quarter. The Rams were not done, however, and James Harris, he led the Rams on a quick five-play drive, which ended with a 44-yard bomb to, to Jackson. So now it's nine minutes left. The Vikings are up 14-10 to 10 at home. The Vikings started to push back the Rams. They're, when the Rams got the ball back, their pass rush chased Harris, and they had a punt. The game ended up, I told you it was so sloppy, the game featured five L.A. and four Minnesota turnovers. So as soon as one team turned it over, the other team would give it right back. Chuck Foreman fumbled again at midfield, and the ball squirted and, and like kind of skidded off the hard turf until the Vikings actually fell on it, luckily. So the, the ball was really bouncing their way once again on that, on that very hard tundra. And the Vikings, thankfully, were able to survive this ugly battle of turnovers and run out the clock to head back to the Super Bowl as NFC champs for the second year in a row. Next stop, Super Bowl IX in New Orleans at Tulane Stadium. The Superdome had not yet been built, so they were going to play outside again in New Orleans. Their opponents were the first-time AFC champions, Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers were only two years removed from their immaculate reception when they beat the Raiders to, to win their first playoff game. And then that year, they lost to the eventual champions, Dolphins, in the AFC Championship. They were one year removed from losing to the Raiders badly in the divisional round, 33-14. to 14. But this year they went 10-3-1, and their defense, the Steel Curtain, led up the second-least points in the NFL. They were coached by future legend Chuck Knoll, or Emperor Chaz, as he was known, by the late Steelers announcer Myron Cope. Knoll had, an, had, an, had been an assistant head coach to Don Shula when 
The Colts lost to the Jets, so that's a little fun fact of Chuck Mills' backstory in Super Bowl three. On offense, obviously, they had Terry Bradshaw. They had a very good backup, Joe Gilliam, who won four games that year when, when Bradshaw got dinged up. And they had that tall, gliding, bruising running back from Penn State, Franco Harris. Rocky Byer would complement in the backfield, and they had a very good, fast, young wide receiver core in Lynn Swan and John Stallworth. And the anchor of their offensive line was future Hall of Famer Mike Webster. Their offense was starting to take shape, but they really relied on their defense, much like the Vikings. Does this sound pretty familiar? The defense was named, I mentioned the Steel Curtain. Very, all of these defenses had great names back then. When they were great defenses, you had the Fearsome Foursome, the Purple People Eaters, the Doomsday Defense, the No-Name Defense. Even begrudgingly, I missed the orange crush defense of the Denver Broncos in the late 70s because that was kind of fun. Now, these Steelers defensive stars roll off the tongue of even the most casual NFL fan. Mean Joe Green, L.C. Greenwood, Dwight White, Jack Ham, Jack Lambert, Mel Blunt, Ernie Holmes, and many others. In the playoffs, they played the Bills in the first round and steamrolled them, and then they beat down the Raiders, their old nemeses, to make it to New Orleans. They were hungry for a win. This city saw the Steelers only make the playoffs once in their first 40 years of existence, but now they had a consistent playoff team, but they wanted a Super Bowl after making the playoffs for three straight years. Because of the great defenses on both sides of the ball and the Steelers' offense just starting to come into its own, the Steelers were three-point favorites, and every fan anticipated a defensive struggle. And that is exactly what they got. All those years of being the NFL doormats led to built-up frustration, and the steel curtain would take it all out on poor Fran Tarkenton and any Viking in their way. This first half must have been one of the ugliest first halves in Super Bowl history. It was a struggle for both offenses to get anything going, and both punters were keeping limber and punting a lot. Pittsburgh did eventually get in position for a 37-yard field goal attempt by Roy Jarella, which he missed. Another field goal attempt by the Steelers was aborted when the holder fumbled the snap at the Vikings' 18-yard line. And the first points of this ugly game were scored on a safety. Tarkenton and Super Dave Osborne muffed a handoff inside their 10-yard line. The ball bounced backwards. Fran covered it up, but because it was wet and slick, he slid into the end zone, and Dwight White literally tapped him on the shoulder to down him for a two-pointer. The Vikings held the Steelers after the ensuing free kick, and Tarkin and Foreman led those Norsemen through the air inside Steelers' territory late in the first half. But a pass over the middle at the Steelers' five-yard line, pre-safety Glenn Edwards crushed John Gilliam, and the ball was deflected when Glenn Edwards crushed him. And Mel Blunt picked up this deflection like a ripe apple at the goal line and returned to 10 yards, so the threat was over. Now, John Gilliam is currently 75 years old, but his head probably still hurts from that hit. That easily would have been a personal foul in nowadays, nowadays roles in the NFL. You got to see the replay of this hit. It was brutal. What that amounted to was a 2-0 Steelers game at the half. It sounds like a Twins-Pirates spring training game, 2-0. The Vikings were going to get the second, second half kickoff, so they were ready to get a little bit of momentum. Now, sadly, the second half, didn't start any better for the Vikings. Roy Jarella, the kicker for the Steelers, slipped on the wet turf as he ran up to kick the ball, and it squibbed along the ground, essentially like an unplanned onside kick. The Vikings couldn't hold on to it, and the Steelers recovered on the Minnesota 30-yard line. Terrible. 
So that's another theme of Vikings playoff failures. We've had the, the no-show when they're favored. We've had the terrible special teams, and now we just get the horrendous luck. Talk about, yeah, like Roy Torella sliding and ending up on his butt, yet somehow looking like a stroke of genius. So the Steelers had the ball deep in Vikings territory, and they hand it off to Rocky Blyer and then Franco Harris. And um, three straight times to Franco, who went around the left end behind great blocking for a nine-yard touchdown on a sweep. And they hit the extra point, and they were up 9 nothing with only a few minutes gone in the third quarter. Now, when all was said and done, the Steelers controlled the line of scrimmage really from both sides. And the Vikings only mustered 17 total rushing yards on 21 carries by the end of the game, which is less than one yard per carry for those who left their calculators at home. The Steelers, actually, they were pretty dinged up. Over the course of the game, they lost starting linebacker Andy Russell. They lost starting linebacker Jack Lambert because of injuries. But the defensive line more than made up for it. Elsie Greenwood dominated Ranieri all day, chased Tarkenton around like he was a naughty child, and batted down two passes to boot. And even when Gilliam got open, Fran was too busy running for his life to notice. So Gilliam got open on a bunch of deep patterns, but Fran just couldn't see him because Elsie Greenwood was like bearing down on him. On a rollout away from Greenwood, Dwight White on another play batted the ball up. While they were trying to avoid Elsie Green, when Dwight White got his hand on and Mean Joe Green intercepted the ball to kill another Viking drive. But all was not lost. Franco did his Chuck Foreman imitation and fumbled at midfield, and Paul Krause, who always seemed to be the man on the spot, recovered. And on the next play, Fran, Fran went for broke and threw a deep pass down the left sideline to Gilliam, who actually drew pass interference call at the five. I think it was rare to get a pass interference against the Steelers at this point. Seems like they could remove someone's spleen on a <laughs> pattern and the refs wouldn't even grab their flag. But the Vikings had first and goal at the one and they were only down nine. On the first play, they handed to Chuck Foreman, who lost the ball as he ran it up the middle and mean Joe Green made the recovery. So I can't even imagine the emotional roller coaster for Minnesota Vans. They're down, they throw a bomb, they're down first and goal at the one, they're getting pumped. First play, Stuffed, fumble, recovered by, recovered by the Steelers. The Steelers, thank, thankfully for the Vikings, had a punt from their 15 three plays later. Now, Matt Blair, who would go on to be a long-term star, a long-time star for the Vikings at linebacker, was on special teams that came flying in and blocked Bobby Walden's punt and ended up crushing him in the process. The ball bounced backwards, and Terry Brown recovered it for the Vikings in the end zone for a touchdown. The Vikings were only down 9-6. And Freddie Cox lined up for a PAT, which he promptly clanked <laughs> off the left upright and a ricocheted away. But they're still only down by a field goal. So 9-6, they go, yay, we got, yay, we're first to go. Oh, we fumbled. Yay, we got the ball back. Yay, we got a touchdown. Oh, we missed the extra point. I mean, It's not an easy life, Peter, rooting no, for this team. No, I can't. The highs, high highs and low lows. The Steelers were up 9-6. They got the ensuing kickoff and kept it mostly on the ground because it didn't seem like a good day to pass the ball because it was cold and wet. And they had a bunch of clutch third-down conversions on passes when they needed to. So they were, a little, they were very deliberate. And Bradshaw hit Larry Brown with a 30-yard pass down to the Vikings 30 when he decided to surprise him and unload it. And on the way to the turf, it appeared he was stripped of the ball and Minnesota recovered. Now, the head linesman overruled the call and said he was down. The Vikings sideline went absolutely ballistic, but there was no instant replay rule yet. So Pittsburgh kept the ball, but it did look like a fumble, you know, looking back on it. 
the Steelers capitalized. They did a really clever counter run by Blyer, which went for 17 yards. And then Bradshaw hit Rocky Blyer on a short pass on a crucial third down. They had first and goal with the three. And Terry rolled out and hit Larry Brown again for a touchdown to put the game out of reach, 16-6, to which was the final score. Now, Pittsburgh ended up running for 259 yards on the ground for the whole game. Franco would be named the Super Bowl MVP, finishing with 158 yards rushing, and which was a Super Bowl record at the time, even though it was eventually eclipsed by one-hit wonder Timmy Smith with 204 yards for the Washington football team versus Denver in Super Bowl 22. The Steelers got 17 first downs to the Vikings' nine, and Tark only threw for 102 yards and three picks on top of the two lost fumbles he had for the team. Bradshaw threw for a very efficient 96 yards, so this was not a pretty game by anybody's count, except Steeler fans love the final score, and that's all there was really to love about it besides the, the defensive play. Terry Bradshaw actually scrambled for 33 yards on the ground, but it was really Franco and the defense that were the story. In summary, the Vikings had made their third trip to the Super Bowl and came back empty-handed once again. I'd like to think that at least they enjoyed themselves in the Big Easy, either before or after the game, because that place is a great place to eat and drink. But I don't know if that was any consolation for that team. It sure was not to me, Peter. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. It was not to lose and lose ugly. Winning ugly, you can, you can stomach. Losing ugly, never. The Vikings, unfortunately, were unable to really get much out of the draft, but they still had their core on both units. Fran Tarkin had one of his best statistical years. He threw for just under 3,000 yards, which is still a good amount for the mid-70s. 25 TDs and 13 interceptions. So that was, that was pretty cool. He completed 64% of his passes, which was a career high. Ran for 108 yards and two touchdowns. And actually was named the NFL MVP and was an All-Pro for his great efforts. So he had probably his best year in the pros, statistically speaking. In the backfield, Chuck Foreman also had his best year. Over 1,000 yards on the ground, 13 rushing touchdowns, 691 receiving yards, and nine touchdowns. But unfortunately, he led the NFL in fumbles with 12. Uh, I mean, you got to take the good with the bad, I guess. Now, you still had in the backfield Ed Marinaro, Brent McClanahan, who I hadn't mentioned previously, they each had 300 yards on the ground whenever Chuck needed a breather. Ed Marinaro actually caught 54 passes out of the backfield and got three receiving touchdowns, so not bad for an Ivy Leaguer. Now, the ever-dangerous John Gilliam was still the go-to receiver, who, once again, they should have triple-teamed every single play. And he had seven touchdowns. They had a few other good receivers rounding it out. Stu Voigt and Jim Lasher each had 30 catches each over. They were still very balanced on offense. Not spectacular, but balanced. On the defense, the team was still keeping up the pressure. They got two safeties, returned two fumbles for touchdowns, and they overcompensated for Chuck Foreman's loose hands recovering 34 fumbles as a team all year. I forgot to look up if that's a record, but that's insane. Recover- it's an epidemic, man, all over the league. This is terrible. Hold on to the ball. I know. Did they Did they have a greasier ball this year, like that year they had the greasier soccer ball? For the World Cup? <laughs> I don't know. You had Paul Krause and Bobby Bryant. They were both pro bowlers, and they were still expert pass pilferers, which is hard to say. Paul Krause had 10 picks. Bobby Bryant had six picks. And the team had 28 total. So, I mean, Bryant was a monster ball hawk. And when the ball hit the deck, he also recovered five fumbles. And I mentioned Krause was not only a pro bowler, but he was also an all pro. 
So I think the two of them, in retrospect, the two of them should have done a buddy movie in the 70s, and I would have gone to see it. It would have been something like Paulie and the Stash or something like that. Because, <laughs> because Brian had the best mustache in his early 20s. you got to see his stash. His, his facial hair was epic. He just had the thickest mustache. But unfortunately, they were 33 and 31 years old, and they were on the clock. Probably only had a couple years left in the tank. But they still could have made a buddy movie after retirement, even with a little salt and pepper hair and a little salt and pepper mustache. But, you know, that would have, that would have been a dream. But they didn't do it. They were not the only Vikings whose uh, mustaches and beards were getting a little grayer. With the exception of Sutherland, their front line was getting old for football players, particularly D-linemen. Jim Marshall was 38. Carl L. was 33. Alan Page, thankfully, was a still sprite, sprightly 30 and was named All-Pro again, and he wasn't really slowing down for anybody. And that dude was just consistently a star. The linebacking law firm of Seaman Winston and, Hil- and Hilgenberg were still very solid as ever. And uh, on special teams, you had 37-year-old Freddie Cox. A lot Unbelievable. Of, still kicking, literally still move, kicking. Move on. Find a soccer player and find a European guy. Come on, bud. <laughs> find a guy from a high school team in football. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Dave Winfield, he could have probably kicked. Honestly, Dave Winfield is one of those guys that could have done anything he wanted to. So the team, the team was 12-2. and two. They were the third best offense and defense in the whole league. And their two losses were by a total of eight points. They uh, tied the Rams and the Steelers for the best record in the NFL. And going 12-2, and two, they were hosting a divisional playoff game in Bloomington yet again. And it was against the now wild card Dallas Cowboys, who had won 10 games. Now, these Cowboys were led by Roger Dodger, saw back again at quarterback, and they handed off to the late great Robert Newhouse. Now, he was a fullback, but he featured a running back that year and got 930 yards and two touchdowns. And if you ever saw Newhouse, he was famous for having tree trunks for thighs. He was like, he was a pioneer quadzilla. I mean, this guy was, I mean, you couldn't wrap one, uh, two arms around his thighs, let alone both eyes if you're trying to tackle him. I wasn't trying to be erotic there. So <laughs> they had another running back who was a bit versatile, Preston Pearson, which is a very cool name. And they had a bruising running back, Doug Dennison, rounding out the backfield. They had ascending wide receiver, Drew Pearson, who had over 800 yards and eight TDs. He led the receiving core. They still had Golden Richards, who was a deep threat, averaging close to 22 yards a catch and getting four touchdowns. Um, now, Golden actually is his middle name, much like Austin Danger Powers. Danger is his middle name. If my middle name was Golden and I was an NFL wide receiver and I scored a lot of touchdowns, I would go by Golden, too. The kicker was the late Tony Frisch, who I talked about earlier. Now, Tony it was Tony with an I. Uh, he passed away a couple years ago, and he was 5'7", 190. But in his playing days, he was actually on the Austrian national soccer team. And now we keep going back to soccer-style kickers. Back then, kickers were usually regular-looking guys that easily could have been driving a truck or working at a factory. But as a soccer player, Tony Frisch was no slouch. He represented Austria nine times in international play. And at the age of 20, he scored two goals against England in Wembley Stadium in 1965. Now, Austria upset Old Blighty 3-2, to two, which is impressive for a soccer player, let alone going on and kicking the NFL. He's like the European Dave Winfield. He can play multiple sports, yeah. He is. Go, go Tony Frisch. The Doomsday defense was still around. They ranked ninth in the NFL in points allowed. They had Ed Tutal Jones, one of the uh, simplest yet coolest nicknames for a defensive player. Jethro Pugh, which is a, a great name as well. Harvey Martin and Larry Cole. They were, they were a terrifying group, much like the Vikings. He still had D.D. Lewis in the linebacker core. 
Their D-backs, they still had Mel Renfro, Charlie Waters, and Cliff Harris, who was a pro bowler that year. This was another one of those December outdoor games in Bloomington, Minnesota. So this game started as a tight affair and another scoreless first quarter. Probably took that long just for the guys to get their muscles loose. But in the second quarter, the Vikings got a huge break when a great punt by Neil Claybo, who was their punter that year, was, was bouncing around inside the Cowboy five-yard line when a Cowboy shockingly decided to reach out and touch it and not recover it. So it was recovered by the Vikings at the four. And two plays later, Chuck Foreman held on to the ball and powered in from one-yard line for a 7-0 Vikings lead. And that was the lead they would go into the locker rooms with, which I'm sure Bud Grant, I'm sure, did not have any heaters in the locker room either. He wanted those guys cold as shit so they were numb going into the second half. I wonder if that's why Foreman fumbled so much. Maybe they should have let him, right. let him have a muff. Yeah, exactly. Let him have some hand warmers or something. You know what? In retrospect, that is probably the cause of most of his fumbles. So in the third quarter, Roger Staubach, who was a wily veteran, led a steady drive and brought the Cowboys down, and he tied the game on a four-yard run by Dennison up the gut to cap off a really good drive. That was how it remained going into the fourth quarter. Now the Cowboys got the ball back and marched the ball inside the Vikings' red zone, but a third down pass to Preston Pearson fell short of the first down, and they had to settle for a 24-yard field goal attempt from Tony Frisch, who actually knocked it through. That's one for the uh, former Austrian soccer player. So Tark and the Vikings finally decided to put together their own drive and said, we can do it too. So he, he orchestrated an 11-play, 70-yard, six-minute, six-second grind-out drive with most of the yardage coming from Tarkenden throwing to Foreman and Chuck swerving in and out of the Dallas secondary for extra yards once he caught it. So they took it down to the one where they handed off to McClanahan, and he got stuffed initially, but he had a great second effort and carried the ball barely into the end zone for a touchdown. And Freddie Cox had a successful PAT and made it a four-point game, 14-10 Vikings with 5-11 left. So even Freddie's hitting his kicks, man. I yeah. like our chances here where things are looking up. Things are looking things are, good for the Vikes. Exactly. After the kickoff, Dallas started from their own 25, and their drive went backwards. They had a delay of game. And then it was third and 23, and Staubach fumbled the shotgun snap at the five and had to scramble to get back some yards and uh, took it out to the 21, but Dallas had a punt. The Vikings had the ball and the lead at their own 44-yard line. It was 2.20 left at this point, third and two near midfield. Tarkington rolled out, and defensive back Charlie Waters smothered him for a loss. So now it was the two-minute warning, and the Vikings had to punt up by only four. Um, after the two-minute warning, the Vikings punted, and Golden Richards made a fair catch at the 15, um, which uh, had took nine seconds off the clock. Drew Pearson had been shut down by those, by those super D-backs of the Vikings all day. Drew Pearson was their star wide receiver, had not even caught one pass all day, but that was about to change. Stallback hit him twice, once for nine yards, and the next time on a third and one, where Roger had to pick a poor shotgun snap off the turf and escape the Vikings' rush, rush, I should say, where he scrambled and Drew Pearson got open, where he caught it at the 31 for a first down. On the next play, a low snap was again fumbled by Staubach, who fell on it at the 24-yard line 
with 106 left and the clock running. And Roger, in, in uh, looking at this old footage, was visibly pissed off. And this is a guy that always looked unflappable. So the next play, he dropped back and had the Vikings in his face, so he rushed his throw, and it floated out of bounds. So it's third and 17 with 52 seconds left. So it was getting to almost do-or-die territory for the uh, Dallas Cowboys. Now, the next play was almost identical with Staubach rushing a pass in the face of a fierce four-man rush, but it also fell incomplete near midfield. So now the Cowboys have no timeouts, and it's fourth and 17 in their own territory. So the Vikings, I mean, the Cowboys, I should say, could not afford another crappy snap. So they replaced their misfiring veteran center with a rookie. Not too much pressure, new kid. Okay, you go in there and snap it to Roger Staubach in the playoffs in Minnesota. This one's in the bag. The Vikings got this one, I think. Yeah. So the shotgun snap was actually perfect for Roger. He dropped back and was immediately under pressure as the clock was ticking away. You can almost see this in slow-mo. So it looked like the Vikings uh, – Vikings looked like actually – when I looked at this, this footage, it looked like they were actually being held everywhere on the field by the Cowboys' offensive line. There was no flag thrown, um, but Roger let loose a pass down the right sideline where Pearson was in one-on-one coverage at midfield. Drew drunk, jumped up, caught it, and on his way down was able to get both feet in bounds before he was shoved out. And the referee ruled it a catch as per the rules of the time. So fourth and 17 converted at midfield. So now it's 32 seconds left. And, of course, Roger was still in the shotgun after another solid snap. He dropped back to his own 42 and let rip high arching throw towards Drew Pearson, who was running down the right sideline toward the goal line. Remember, they had no timeouts. They were trying to get as close to scoring as possible or score. So Pearson was being covered stride for stride by Nate Wright. Now, why you didn't have Paul Krause or Bryant Helping out on Drew Pearson, their only dangerous, really dangerous wide receiver is beyond me. And why he wasn't just sitting in his jock the whole time. But he was in the neighborhood, but he got there too late. The ball was underthrown, so Pearson actually had a stop at the five. But Wright kept going and didn't realize it was uh, underthrown, so overran the play slightly. Drew did a little bit of a swim move, as, as, um, as we would call it nowadays, to get away from Wright. Some might call it a push-off, but some would call it a, a swim move, depending upon who you're cheering for. But Pearson caught the ball, which he bobbled off of his hip. Eventually, he caught it. I mean, he maintained possession, strolled into the end zone untouched for a touchdown to take a lead. Now, this touchdown came to be known as the Hail Mary, because that was what Roger Stallback said, he, the prayer he said um, in the huddle in a post-game interview. So Tony Frisch hit the extra point, and now it was 17-14, Cowboys with 24 seconds left. Now the Vikings, unfortunately, were flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, so the ensuing kickoff was from midfield, and it pinned Minnesota at the 15-yard line. Um, so Tarkenton first play got sacked at the one-yard line. So fans were getting angry, and they started to actually throw objects on the field an official was actually even knocked down when a bottle hit him in the head. So the game was getting worse all the way around for the Vikings. Um, unfortunately, the game ended with a whimper and not a growl 
and Tarkenton was scrambling and got sacked at the four-yard line by Ed Tuttle-Jones and Harvey Martin, and time expired. So these Vikings were done in by a play which would actually become legendary, unfortunately, as the first Hail Mary. So not the type of distinction you really want. And the only thing that would make things more tragic for the Vikings was a true tragedy, unfortunately, that day. While watching the game at his home in Savannah, Georgia, Tarkenton's 63-year-old father, who was a reverend named Dallas Tarkenton, that was actually his real name, had a fatal heart attack. Now, the Vikings knew about this, but they did not tell Fran until after the game. So a truly horrible end to a disappointing season for Fran and the Vikings. I mean, you have to feel for the guy and the team. I mean, if Bud Grant had any more gray hairs that were not gray, they were gray after that game. Um, these Vikings, I mean, these Vikings, I should say, these Cowboys would go on to beat the Rams 37-7 easily in the NFC Championship and then go on to lose a very tight Super Bowl to the Pittsburgh Steelers who were winning their second. Nothing to say here except 100% obvious offensive pass interference. 100%. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. That's probably why the Vikings went ballistic and got unsportsmanlike conduct. And that's probably why the ref had a bottle hit him in the head. I'm not condoning. <laughs> I don't endorse the bottle throwing, but yeah. I do not, endorse, I not endorse anything getting thrown on the field um, in a football game, period. You can throw your hat on the ice for a hat trick in hockey, but that is about it. And in ice castles, they threw roses on the ice, and that, that ended badly. So you've you got to see that movie if you have it. That's, that. <laughs> I'll get right on that. You get on that. No, don't, don't watch it. Don't watch it. It's a Robbie Benson 70s tearjerker classic. That is all for part two of our 1968 to 1978 Minnesota Vikings podcast. This is part two of three. So please remember to download or subscribe so you can get all three parts of this Viking saga. The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. Once again, I'd like to thank Checky Brown for allowing us to use their song Hippie Bully as our theme song. So take us home, boys. <laughs>